You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. Coming up, why college admissions were unfair long before the college indictments came out. But first, to politics with the political junkie and Ken Rudin. Good morning, Ken. How was your weekend? It was lovely, Carrie. How was yours? It was good. There was a lot of political news to talk about. I was thinking, oh, I've got to bring this up with Ken. Then I have to bring that up with Ken. I know. I know. All we have today is an hour. I know. We have oh, we don't have oh, an hour. Oh, we have twenty minutes, oh, my friend. Let's get oh, okay, going. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Hey, if okay, you have sorry. a if you have a question for Ken about the Democratic candidates or the uh, Trump administration, some of what's gone on over the weekend, here's the phone number. If you want to get in on this, six five one two two seven six thousand eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight, and on Twitter. At Carrie NPR. Ken, uh, I want to talk about the first veto of President Trump's administration on Friday. He was vetoing a bill that rejected his declaration of a national emergency at the border. So it does appear that Congress does not have enough votes to override. That means this declaration of a national emergency stays in place. Is that right? Yes, it stays in place. And certainly there are court challenges and everybody's awaiting that. And of course, with the Congress not having a two thirds, uh, seemingly not having a two thirds vote to override the president's veto, you could say, well, this is good news for the president. But the fact that 12 Republican senators stood up to the pre- President Trump and said, no, th- this this violates the separation of powers between the executive and legislative branches. That's at least some kind of a sign that some Republicans may be willing to not go along with the president as they have for the per- for the first two and a half years. The, the uh, administration also faces some l- potential lawsuits, don't they, uh, for where they want to put this wall and some of the laws that they're going to use to try to take the land. I mean, this is not the end of this because he gets to veto this resolution. No, No, it may be the end of it for Congress, but I think everybody knows from the beginning because of all the court challenges. And you're exactly right. There are property issues there that landowners might find themselves completely uh, just, you know, their, their property being take, taken away from them to build this wall. There are there are certain, you know, uh, constitutional rights that the different courts are, 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 are looking at and considering. So while the legislative process may have may come to an end, if Congress is unable to uh, override the veto. And the fact is that even if even if the House doesn't override, uh, the Senate will still take out a vote, take up a vote anyway. So everybody will be on record and how they feel. And it was interesting to see people like Tom Tillis of North Carolina <laughs> and Ben Sass of, uh, of uh, Nebraska, uh, Nebraska yeah. who, have, who have talked about basically that, you know, Congress uh, has its, its, its own uh, uh, rights and they're we're responsible for the we have the power of the purse. And yet, as a matter of fact, even after Tom Tillis wrote a big scathing op-ed saying why I'm voting against the president on the Senate floor, he voted with the president. So <laughs> So there is profiles and courage and there's lack of profiles and courage. But Congress does go away. Now the courts take over. I, I'm sure you are observing, as there there has been some interesting writing on this, on how New Zealand is reacting to this massacre, 50 people, I think, dead now in two mosques uh, over the weekend. 
uh, what the what the New Zealand prime minister is saying about uh, gun reforms. Details coming within 10 days and the way the United States has reacted in the wake of so many of these incidents. Give me an observation or two, Ken, that you're making on this. The the same exact thing hit me, you know, when you have this horrific uh, slaughter in New Zealand and the prime minister saying maybe we need to revisit the, uh, the, the ability to get guns into people's hands so easily and even the the the, the store that that sold the gun to the alleged uh uh killer said yes i i absolutely support more stringent gun laws and yet you have in here in this country you have charleston you have sandy hook you have aurora you have all these tragedies i mean um i mean it's just non-stop uh slaughter after slaughter with people without having the access to guns and just killing people and yet there's always people in Congress who or the only words they know to say is Second Amendment, not, you know, rights of, of Americans to be safe. So it's just pretty remarkable how this is the, the I mean, I don't remember the last time you had any kind of a, such horrific gun violence in New Zealand. And immediately the prime minister says, OK, we need to take we right. need to take a look at this. And nobody's thinking twice about it. Nobody's thinking this is out of the ordinary. And yet in this country, again, I mean. As I said to you on your show many times, if you have you can have the slaughter of twenty some odd second and third graders in in Sandy Hook, uh, Connecticut, and if that does not bring Congress to doing some kind of a, a minimum background checks, universal background checks, then I don't know how anything will change here. You know, I've wondered why I have not heard, and maybe it's because it happened in New Zealand and not here, but there has not been much of a discussion about gun policy or gun uh, law reform on the campaign trail yet, very early days. But I assume if and when this happens again in the United States, all of these potential nominees are going to have to have some detailed ideas about this, including Beto O'Rourke, who hasn't fleshed out a lot of specifics of what he would do. Well, Beto O'Rourke is another story completely. I mean, of course, one he comes from... Texas, which is, of course, a gun-loving state. And two, the criticism of Beto O'Rourke. You know, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Before he announced his candidacy, everybody's saying that Beto O'Rourke is the second coming of Barack Obama and Bobby Kennedy and all these these great (laughs) orators in American history. Uh And yet, I mean, look, three terms in Congress, yes. Uh, A a lot of accomplishment, no. Detailed uh, uh, policy papers, no. And so once he came out and announced his candidacy, everybody's saying, boy, he has such a thin resume and he's a white male. <laughs> I, I don't think we knew this until now that he was a white male. But the the big and I wonder if the same thing is going to happen with Joe Biden. Should he run? And I the know. indications are that Joe Biden will get in like, oh, if only Joe Biden would save the moderates in the Democratic Party. And then once he gets in and we talked about this on your show last week, all this history of saying nice things about Republicans, you know, Mike Pence is a decent guy and and boy I sure voted for that 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 uh, a crime bill in 1994 and all the things that are coming back to bite him. The problem with Joe Biden is that he was, you know, being around for for 36 years in the Senate. He supported things that were quite popular back then that are certainly not popular today. He's got a long record, you're saying. Lots of examination to dig into his record. And things yeah. have changed. Things have changed. I, I wanted Look, to play... Just one quick thing. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Ken. 
I just want to say quickly, I mean, go back to 2008. That was not a long time ago. But Joe Biden and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were all against same-sex marriage. Now the thought of a Democratic candidate being against same-sex marriage is such a heresy. It's like, where are you? I mean, and yet not long ago, that was conventional wisdom in the Democratic Party, let alone the rest of the country. I'm sure you, sure you saw the numbers, the fundraising numbers. Beto O'Rourke raised $6.1 million in the first 20 24 hours. Here he is. Here he is in Iowa on the first or second day that he's actually an announced candidate. Let's listen. The challenges before us, I hope you agree, have never been greater. The the greatest of our lifetimes. If you look at the crises in our economy, where the power has been concentrated into the hands of the privileged, the few, and the corporations, if you look at our democracy, which may very well be a democracy soon enough in name only unless we get it back and make sure that it represents people and not special interests and corporations. And if you look at the climate, which if in this 10-year window we do not do everything we possibly humanly can, the generations that follow us, and I mean our kids in our kids' lifetimes, by the time Ulysses is my age and he's 12 years old right now, We may not be able to live in some of the cities that we call home today. So I think we've got a values statement there, right? He's got got issues that motivate him as a politician and as a citizen. You know, I hear a lot of journalists go, where's the specifics? Where's the detail? I don't know if voters right now, they say they want to know that stuff, but but. I, I don't. I, he can get away with this for a while, can he? Without I having the a, ten point plan on everything. What's what, yeah? I have a big. I have a big smile on my face right now, and I love that you're saying this because it can't be. You know, because the fact that I'm very old and remember everything. I remember back in 1975 and Jimmy Carter. You know, Jimmy who was running around the country. I'm saying, and he's saying, you know, the kind of things that Better O'Rourke is saying today that our government has failed us, our leadership has failed us. We can do better. And I'm saying, give me a break. I mean, Jimmy Carter is not saying, where is a specific? Say something with detail. Say something with a number in it. <laughs> but I think you may be right. He was, not only was he drawing huge crowds in a three-day uh, visit to Iowa over the weekend. I mean, the, the, the press was there. It was an interesting comparison. I read the, the, amount, the amount of reporters who were covering Beto O'Rourke <laughs> and Amy Klobuchar, who was there. I think there was one person from the Daily Planet who was there you know, <laughs> visiting her and talking. Door. I think that was it. But I'm, but you may be right. Yeah. You may be right. The the voters are not looking for details in 24 page policy positions. They're looking for somebody to save us, you know, from the excesses of what's going on right now. And Beto O'Rourke perhaps can do it as well as anybody. Okay. Not better. Two things about Beto that struck me over the weekend. I'm uncomfortable. I, and I know there's been a lot of online discussion about this. With the way his wife never said a word, never said a word, and gazed. She had that kind of Nancy Reagan gaze. Mike Pence. (laughs) Mike Pence. Right. Uh, (laughs) The way Mike Pence looks at Donald Trump. But here's the thing. Chuck Todd flew down from Meet the Press, flew down and caught Beto O'Rourke like at the end of a rally or something. So it wasn't, you know, this was not some sit down thing. And he asked him off the cuff about three books that influence him as a thinker and a politician. And Beto O'Rourke rattled off three 
really important books. And I was like, man, that is impressive. I don't know how many people <laughs> could do that, Ken. I'm serious. No, uh, well, He's a thinker. <laughs> he's a reader. He, no, Go ahead. He is. And he's a skater. I mean, he, you know, he he's everything. He, <laughs> what do you he mean really, he's a skater? I don't mean that's. Well, he's a skateboarder. I mean, I don't mean that sarcastically. Yeah. I mean, he is everywhere. And it's very interesting. Go on social media and look at the reaction to Chuck Todd for having the temer- having the temerity to ask him a certain question. It's saying, oh, Chuck really? Todd is, you know, the evil. The, oh, my oh, goodness Oh, I didn't gracious. see that. Yeah. Oh, I, I used to, Chuck Todd used to work for me at, at the hotline many, many years ago. And so I'm still <laughs> friends with Chuck. And I sent him a note and I said, look, I'm sure given your uh, position on social media, you don't look at criticism, but my goodness, were you, were you ripped apart by everybody? And that's so ridiculous. But I agree with you. He's, he's, some people will say some person's glibness or some one person who sees glibness sees, sees a work in progress yeah. and somebody who has a sharp mind, a quick mind. And look, look, the, the, the fact that he says, well, you know, I really haven't haven't helped my wife raise the children. Well, he's backed up on, on that. So all the things about his wife and other things people will will be digging into. And again, I, I, I thought the same thing. I was watching his wife. It's like when, when Elliot Spitzer or one of those politicians are about to be or indicted or they get caught in a scandal and the wife <laughs> stands there with the, with the, like, the blank look. Hey, there was but, a whole look, CBS I, spinoff show called The Good Wife about how Elliot Spitzer is. But here, one thing, Ken, to say about this, that, um, you know, the fact that he admitted that she does most of the child rearing, I thought was refreshing. If you read Michelle Obama's book, that's one of the things that comes out, that she was holding down the fort while he was in the state legislature and, and, you know, running for Congress and then running for the U.S. Senate. She did the work. But she didn't talk about that very much in the campaign. I think this is kind of refreshing that we're going to get it out there. So so I want to no. hear more from her. No, I do, too. And But but sometimes the, the, the inter, interactions between husband and wife, it just very, very hard. I just remember when Elizabeth Warren offered her video uh, when she was announcing her candidacy and she opened up a beer and said, honey, you want a beer? I mean, she was trying. It seems so hard. <laughs> now, she has 7,000 pages of policy proposals that are I very, know. probably more detailed than anybody. Yeah. But she said, honey, have a beer. And everybody said, oh, oh my God, she yeah. offered her husband a beer. Don't underestimate what, what, what it's like to have to do this oh my gosh so hard oh, no. the knives are out it's hard isn't it all right more you're, 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 okay one good thing about it yeah well, read george conway read kellyanne conway's <laughs> husband's tweets oh my god talk about <laughs> we'll uh, what, what they talk about in bed at night that is fascinating <laughs> we'll do can uh chat with you next time thanks much see you Carrie. you just heard a recording of a live radio show on npr news To add your voice to discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at CarrieMPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.